My name is Leah Payne, and this is Brian R. Doak. Think about that <laughs> Happy one Friday, everybody. Oh, why here. is it starting again? The playlist ah! should be starting again. We are thrilled to welcome you Shut to mouth, Friday playlist. of Theo 101. We want to have a, we want to extend a special welcome to our visitors who are here because it is Bruin Preview Hey, week. let's clap for the welcome. Bruin Preview. Yes, welcome, 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 welcome. Yes, yes. And for those of you who are new, this is the end of a typical Theo 101 week that begins on Monday with a lecture on a big idea found in the Apostles' Creed this year, or this week, it is I Believe in Jesus Christ. And then it is followed by a Wednesday small group discussion. And now here you are on Friday where we have a panel discussion taught or led by uh, Brian R. Doak, and also including a teaching professor and um, a couple of other really exciting panelists that Dr. Doak will talk with you about in a little bit. So if you're just joining us, it doesn't sound like it's on. Okay. Oh, well, it's ah. on. So if you're just joining us for today, know that you're coming into a three-part process and you're just coming for the unscripted, wild end to the week in which we engage with the class, we pass a microphone around, and we question each other about our readings and the topics that we've discussed for that week. So that's what you're coming into. That's right. We're really excited, and we're excited to be talking about uh, the person of Jesus Christ. Um, Dr. Garcia talked with us a lot about the theological meanings of Jesus, um, and also it's important to remember that Jesus was a person in a real place in a real time. Um, I know you've done a little bit of work about, you know, exploring people in the ancient world. What do you know about the person of Jesus? Well, I'll tell you one question that I have that's like my most burning question. It's maybe not my most burning question, but I, I, I'm a very visual person. Anybody like very visual? Like you want to picture, like you read stories and you want to visualize it. And for me, I'm like, what did Jesus look like? I just want to know what to visualize, you know? And we have so many artistic depictions of Jesus, but actually there are precisely zero artistic depictions of Jesus of any kind from Jesus' own contemporary world, or really anything close to it, which is bizarre, right? Yeah, well, what's the earliest version that you've heard of? Oh, I think the earliest physical depiction of Jesus that we know of is actually a mocking depiction. It's a, it's a depiction of a character on a cross. Jesus was killed on this instrument of Roman execution, and the character, it's on a graffiti, and actually someone drew a, a character on a cross with the head of like a donkey or a horse, and was mocking another person saying, ha ha, this is your God. And wow. so the earliest depictions we have of Jesus are actually, is that one, we think, and it's a mocking depiction. But, uh, you know, other early depictions have maybe classic, you know, come from centuries later. Jesus with a beard, Jesus with the flowing hair, Jesus with the white robes, with the little children. I remember my grandmother had this picture of Jesus in a bedroom where I used to stay when I, when I, when I stayed and lived with my grandmother for short times. And it was like this very like white Jesus, and he had these blue eyes, just like, it was almost like a 3D hologram with kind of well picture. With well-conditioned hair. Yeah, it's really well-conditioned hair, and just like staring with just utmost love out at me. And I remember as a child thinking like, is that what Jesus really looked like? Wow. Well, there's a lot of good questions associated with that. Um, and that just lets us know that there are so many more things that we need to talk about uh, regarding Jesus, Jesus Christ from the Creed. And we're going to continue that discussion next week as well. Um, but shall we start our, our week with reciting the creed? What do you all think? Let's do it. Our, our phrase for the our week, last week is, I believe in Jesus Christ, right? Can we all do it together? All right, will you join us in reciting the creed? I, I believe, believe in God, God the, the Father, Father Almighty, 
creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ. Wonderful. Dr. Payne, take that mic out into the wild, wild crowd. Without further ado. You can do it. I'm going to mount these stairs up on the stage, and I want to introduce to you this panel that we have so exciting this week, and I'm so excited to talk with them. On the far, far right, you remember him from Monday. You remember him from his first lecture. You remember him for his beard. Dr. Javier Garcia. <laughs> Dr. Garcia, welcome back. Next to him in the center, Hannah Suter. Let's give it up for Hannah Suter. Is our pastoral guest for the week. Hannah is a pastor at New Hope Church, which is in Southeast Portland, or Happy Valley, whichever you prefer to call it. Um, she's also the director of a program called Theologia, which is, is, is kind of like a, a geeky Bible and theology camp for high school students who are thinking about going to college and studying theology. Welcome, Pastor Suter. We're so pleased to have you. And then, right here next to me, we have our most wild card guest ever, not a member of our teaching team, but we have Professor Megan Sullivan, Megan Sullivan from the University of Notre Dame, who just, yes, let's clap. Clap for her. Clap now. You can take the microphone. Professor Sullivan is a professor of philosophy, and she has a book coming out called God and the Good Life. She teaches a big class, maybe not totally unlike this one in some ways, um, at Notre Dame. Um, she's a moral philosopher, and so she has an affinity with that character on the, on the good place, right? The one that we talked about. Does everyone actually hate moral philosophers? Is he right about that on the show? Yes. Oh, <laughs> I knew it. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> professor Sullivan is also currently writing a book about Jesus, in particular, Jesus' command that we love everyone, that we love some people. How many people exactly should we love? Professor Sullivan is exploring this in her new book, and we're super pleased to have you on the panel with us. Thank you so much for being here. All right, Dr. Garcia, first you. We need to talk to you about your lecture a little bit. You focus very heavily. I mean, there's so much when we talk about the topic of Jesus. I believe in Jesus Christ. So many different directions we could go. So many options. What did Jesus look like? What did Jesus eat? What were Jesus' teachings? You chose in your lecture to go straight to essentially the crucifixion, the moment when Jesus, Jesus died. And you focus very heavily on that motif. I wonder if you could just talk more about why that choice to start. Is that a good starting place for thinking about Jesus? I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to focus on um, what I see as a culmination of God's love for us in the death of Christ. Uh, this week, we read some portions of Leviticus. The students were reading um, the beginning chapters of Leviticus and Leviticus 16. And so, uh, just thinking about Christ as a sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God, how he atones for our sins, how he sacrifices once and for all. So, maybe I, I just like the drama of it all, and I'm just gory, but I told you that story. So, yeah. Yeah, there you go. I, I, Pastor Suter, when you, when, when you do your ministry, when you deal with congregants, and maybe you deal with people who are new to faith, what is, what is something about Jesus that attracts them to Jesus, that makes people want to know about Jesus? What, what do you see in your ministry and, and in your engagement with people? I think because we don't have that embodied version of Jesus with us anymore, it's the church that makes people uh, attracted to Jesus. We get to, the church is in scripture referred to as the body of Christ. And so it's those experiences with those people who are representing who he is in the world today that attract or don't attract him to, don't attract people to who Jesus is. Wow. Professor Sullivan, I want to pitch this to you too. I mean, you have access. I mean, we're, we're, we are here at a very, you know, we're a small Christian school. We're way out here on the coast. 
you have access to this broader world of academia at Notre Dame, and this is a, this is a big time school. We're so happy for you to be here and to share this kind of perspective with us. Like, what's the status of Jesus at Notre Dame these days? So how many folks here have been to the Notre Dame campus? Has anybody actually been at the South Bend? So you know if you've been to the Notre Dame campus, our library, uh, it's a 12-story building, and 11 of those stories are Jesus. So there's this humongous <laughs> mural of Jesus. You can see it for like six miles in every wow. direction if on a clear day. So he's a big deal for Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> it's a thing. One thing that, uh, you know, we, have, we recite the creed at our Mass every Sundays, uh, some of the wording is slightly different, but the, the build-up is the same. And one thing that philosophers think about a lot with the I believe in Jesus Christ line is that there are different ways that we talk about the word belief. Uh, and this is a really tricky version of that sentence. So mm. you might think, like, we believe that certain things happen. So I might say, like, I believe that World War II happened. I believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Um, I don't believe that, uh, I'm trying to think of something I don't believe. Like, I don't believe that gluten is bad for you. Sorry if that offends anybody, but there's always like nutritional advice that I, I'm skeptical of. Those are beliefs that, like, and then some certain fact comes in. But then there's also belief in particular people, which just means something totally different. If I tell you, like, I believe in my mom, I'm not, like, believing a fact about my mom. It's like I'm having some kind of attitude about her character and who she is. Um, and that kind of belief is similar to believing facts, but it's also different in certain key respects. It's a relationship that you have with a person. And so it's interesting that the creed plays up that and asks you to say, like, asks you to make a claim about your relation to somebody rather than necessarily uh, just talking about some historical claims that you're going to tick a box off on. So mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting topic to think about, and that's something we think a lot about at Notre Dame and in the Catholic faith, and I think all Christians are always worried about is we're expected to do both things to believe a lot of facts about things that happened um, 2,000 years ago, but to also then believe in a person. Uh, and, and that second kind of belief is one that maybe philosophers need to spend more time thinking about. Hmm. I think that was, just hearing you talk, I think that was my biggest struggle just growing up and trying to have faith and being in Christianity was this idea like, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Does it mean I have to like work up some kind of mental or emotional thing? Like, it's like you could almost feel yourself just trying to will, will yourself, like, oh, I believe, like, I'm trying to believe, like, what am I supposed to believe? And it felt very propositional, like I was supposed to believe that certain things happened or didn't happen. It was hard to know how to translate that into any kind of activity. It's not really a question, okay? Yeah. <laughs> just like a statement. <laughs> Dr. Payne, out there in the crowd, have you got something for us? I do, and um, one of the questions, I'm going to give you a little bit of time to think about it, uh, so, and then we'll, I'll give you another question. It'll make sense in a second. Um, one, the very first, very first question I got was, have y'all listened to Jesus is King, which is, I think, a direct reference to Kanye West. Um, <laughs> I'm going to give you a minute. <laughs> I don't know if anybody wants to weigh in on that. Dr. Garcia, you look like you knew what I was talking about. Oh, I, I know about this album. I think I've Go heard ahead. it, but... I don't, is that just like, yes? Is that, is that what well, I'm Well, I think they want say? you to weigh, on, weigh in on it. Well, yeah, I mean, so Kanye West, huge hip-hop star, has made this kind of like turn in his life toward like very, very spiritual themes and has been hosting these series of concerts in which they're kind of like weird, spiritual, secular mashups of a church service done with a lot of like robes and a lot of religious imagery and so on. 
Um, obviously, with any pop star, it leaves room for people to question whether something like that is, is a kind of like genuine faith, whether it's being done for commercial purposes, whether it's some kind of uneasy mixture of those things. I've, 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 I've watched video of some of the concerts, and they're pretty, they're visually engaging, um, and they're, they're musically fascinating, but I haven't like had a chance to really like sit down like with headphones and listen to the album. I don't, is the album just now out within the last couple of days? I heard it was going to drop at some point pretty quickly, so. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we, we can ask a, a follow-up question, which is: Is Jesus uh, was Jesus around in the Old Testament? Oh, good one, panelists. What do you think? Well, as a as an expert in um, the Hebrew Bible, do you have any thoughts on that? No, Dr. no, Luke? no, no. I, I want to pitch it over to you. He's I want to pitch it to the panelists. I mean, yeah, I think in some ways Christians are always saying that Jesus is in the Old Testament, right? Yeah, but yeah, maybe yeah. not by name. Like, how does that work? How could Jesus be present in Scripture without being named? I mean, I think there are some mysterious episodes where it could be the case that Jesus is there. Um, so, for example, we talked about when Jacob wrestles with the angel, right? Some people speculate that it might be Christ that he's wrestling with to a certain extent. But I think the complication there is Christ is incarnate, right? And so he is specifically a person in the New Testament who comes. And so to argue that he's, maybe you have some sort of appearance of him in some way, but the full incarnational presence is not there until um, the birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnation. Uh, so, yeah, but there, it's, it's interesting to think about typologies as well. So uh, you guys mentioned that uh, in the introduction to my lecture on Monday, that you know, just as Job was an innocent sufferer, so too Christ is an innocent sufferer. Just as Abraham is the father of faith, so too Christ teaches us what perfect faith is. And so these typologies point to Jesus in a flawed way, and so even David, as the, the king of Israel, you know, he sins in his uh, adultery with Bathsheba, uh, but he points towards Christ as king of kings, as a perfect king, the king of Israel, the king of, of, of the world. So um, that's another way that we can see Jesus, maybe less directly, but still being pointed towards in the, in the Hebrew Bible. Any thoughts from pastor or philosopher? I think that there is, it's clear that the New Testament authors believed that that was the case. Um, I think of the book of John where it talks about in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and the word is, being, is, referred to, is referring to Jesus. And so we see that the disciples of Jesus believe that he was present in creation, which I think is a, an example of Jesus being present in the Old Testament. Hmm. Yeah, what do you think, Professor Sullivan? Is Jesus in the whole Bible, or just kind of like when you get to that last fourth part, then he shows up? I mean, the, this gets us into like the million dollar question of Christology, where I look nervously at my co-panelists, because <laughs> I was like way outside of my field as a philosopher. But uh, this just, question go, of, just, just go for it, who cares? <laughs> you know, the, the different dimensions of Jesus as a part of reality. So one, he's the word, he's there at creation, he's there from the very beginning, in which case he's definitely part of every single second of the human story, including all of the material in the Old Testament. The incarnation is a no-joke, really important part of Jesus' life, which brought him into time and space, and it's definitely logically incoherent to talk about somebody existing before they came into existence. So the puzzle is, like, how do we understand incarnate Jesus compared with the Word? And they, they're the same person in our faith, but those are two, like, really different ways that he exists. So good luck. I mean, that's like the million-dollar metaphysical question of Christianity <laughs> is, is figuring out 
how both of those, how we can hold both of those in our minds. I think we can sort that out right now. I think we've yeah. got our best people yeah. working on it. <laughs> uh, no, but that, I mean, but that's a mystery that like you have to hold both of those dimensions in, in the, the forefront of your mind to really understand who Jesus is. And, and it, the, always the temptation is to pick your favorite version of that and just believe in that. Like only really want, what's it, Talladega Nights, have you guys seen this movie? I love Talladega Nights. The, the, the one guy only wants to pray to baby Jesus. <laughs> like, he just, like, that's the, his favorite version of Jesus, and they have the big fight at the dinner table about, like, which Jesus is worth thinking about. Uh, some people, like, I only want desert Jesus, born in Bethlehem with Mary and Joseph, and I don't want to think about him being the Word or being there at creation. And some people only want really abstract Jesus, don't want to get messy in the sand. And you've got to have both. Huh. No, go ahead. Yeah, uh, I just wanted to say also there are some radical places in the New Testament. It's so shocking to the listeners. I, can, I love imagining how people would respond to Jesus where he says, here, right now, the word is being fulfilled in your hearing. Yeah. Like just as Isaiah said that, you know, a messenger of God would come, I am that messenger. And everyone's like, ah, you know, and they, <laughs> they freak out. So he's like, yeah. And also he condemns um, the Pharisees. He says, well, you read Moses and the prophets and you don't believe them. So how are you going to believe me? Right. So he, Jesus is making that connection between um, these uh, kind of prophecies of a, of a prophet or a Messiah and himself. So I think, as you said, um, Pastor Soder, that. In the, in the Old Testament, we have this kind of foreshadowing of Christ, and Jesus makes that link, as well as its disciples, very, very clearly. I wish I could get that freak-out sound as my ringtone on my phone. <laughs> <laughs> Just real quick. I, I wondered if we could drill down, though, Professor Sullivan, on this question. Uh, you brought up the idea that Jesus is, and this is a common image for Christians, Jesus is the Word, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and then we're later told the Word became flesh. Can you do like a philosophy for dummies, like me, version of like that word, word, in Greek there? What does, if Jesus became that, what does that actually mean philosophically? Is there a way this to do that? This is way above my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a moral philosopher. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I honestly, th this is a, a deep question for theologians. Not, well, it's one that, I'll tell you as a philosopher, philosophers like to build models for this. So say like this seems incompatible. Like how could how could Jesus who's a fully embodied concrete part of history and reality also be the the word a word what does word mean here be something that seems much more abstract to us uh, when nothing else on earth that has a body has ever been like that. Um, mm -hmm. And the way philosophers handle this problem, the way theologians handle it is like, let's look at all the different nuances of what this could mean and just try to like build it out into a more complex picture. The way philosophers typically handle puzzles like this is, let's try to find logical systems or models that would make this at least possibly true, like possibly compatible. So that we know at the very least our faith is something that, uh, that's like a complete consistent truth. Even if we're not sure this is exactly how God did it. And I suspect, I'm like, there are lots of things God wants us to know about him and his person that we should be able to discover by our conscience and by the power of human reason. Like that we're commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves, that we're commanded to worship God, that we are meant to be happy and totally fulfilled in God. But then there's some parts of God that I think we've got to take on Revelation or, uh, or just realize that our knowledge might end up being in this life radically incomplete. And I feel like questions about the very nature of God's being 
fall into this category. Like, he'll tell us and disclose to us what we need to know, but the capacity of philosophy to get much further than that mm. is a little bit surprising. And wow. uh, I, think, I think it's quite difficult. That's my personal take. If, like, you know, if there are Catholics in the audience, they'd be like, no, 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 we got a whole books on this. It's going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... But I think it's, uh, the way philosophers approach it is more like speculation. Like, this is one way it could work. Oh, here's another, here's another logical system that could make it work. But at the end of the day, we, we don't have, like, mm. direct answer. Mm. Yeah. Dr. Payne, what do you think? Do you want to go to the crowd? We have a live question here. Ooh. Yep. Let's do it. Hi. Uh, my name's Cam. Um, Hi, Cam. So we talk about um, Jesus a lot in the Bible, and he's in the New Testament. But I was wondering if there's any historical e evidence that proves Jesus Christ lived on earth besides the Bible? Ooh, yeah. this is a fun one. Yeah. There definitely yeah. is. Um, there are some writings from the first century. Not a ton, though. It's not like there's an explosion of dozens and dozens of writings. Um, but there are references to Jesus in some early Jewish authors and in some early rabbinic sources here and there, which pretty clearly within, you know, very soon after Jesus' life, attest to the fact that, yeah, people knew that this was a thing not in the Bible itself. There is a debate about this, probably in some scholarly communities, as there's a debate about everything. But I think this question of whether Jesus was an actual historical person is pretty much something everyone agrees on historically. Um, there might be a few outliers to that. Um, but yeah, there is evidence for that. And if you want to chat with us afterward, we could get down into the really nitty gritty of the names and, and, the, you know, and the sources and so on. In fact, you could probably just Google like evidence of Jesus outside the Bible and find like three or four or five references from the first century AD where you get that sort of thing. So there's that. Does anyone else want to say something about that? Yeah, I mean, again, this is just a matter of maybe naming some of these people. Um, so in terms of the early Christian church, I mean, I, I, maybe I'm wrong on this because it's just off the top of my head, but I vaguely remember somebody like Josephus mentioning, oh, there was this group of Christians and they, um, they followed somebody called Christos who lived and then even uh, in terms of the accounts of the persecution of the early church, we have Tacitus writing about Rome, mm -hmm. and he talks about Nero uh, and how horrible Nero was, but you have this kind of uh, uh, talk about these early Christians who are like a pest to the Roman Empire. Like, oh yeah, they talk about this guy, Christos, that they followed who died on a cross, and you know, we have to deal with this small group of, you know, like, rebellious believers in this weird religion, right? Yeah. So you get perspectives from other people about Jesus and Christians, mm -hmm. um, which validates that something was going on, maybe to outsiders it was more minor, but then it would come to, to, right. to, to obviously become bigger. And then the last thing I'll say is um, uh, there's a lot of uh, talk and, and argumentation about the eyewitnesses of the resurrection and eyewitnesses, eyewitnesses of Jesus. So Richard Bauckham has a very good book on this um, about the eyewitness accounts and so how it was so important in the early church to have eyewitness accounts to attest to things. And so uh, you could take the New Testament accounts of the resurrection as really compelling proof that he uh, resurrected. And then N.T. Wright has this massive tome on the resurrection as well and all this historical detail. So for the student, for Cam, who asked that question, you can go and read many books, um, <laughs> not just, not just yeah. on, on, online, but you know, the real, the real thick ones. That could be the subtitle of this class. Oh. You can read many books. I'll add one more small point to this too. I mean, you asked, I mean, the question was very deliberate, like what is outside the Bible? I will say though that the Bible has four stories of Jesus. These are called gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are by all accounts independent stories 
um, which are all different from each other, which raises the question, why do we need four stories of Jesus? Why not just have one kind of super story which has been all worked out? But the very fact that there isn't one super story, that there are these four different stories and that they are different, I think lends historical credibility even to those stories within the Bible itself. So the Bible shouldn't be discounted as evidence from the first century AD, roughly, that Jesus was an historical person and did things. All right, we've got one question in the middle, and then I'm working my way down toward the front row. So I see that hand, I see that hand. All right. Hello, my name is Thomas. Um, Hi, Thomas. Hello. So in the Bible, it is said that belief alone is enough for salvation. However, other parts of the Bible say that repentance and forgiving your debtors and bearing your cross are also required. Which one of these things is correct? That's a, that is a pastor question. Pastor Suter, belief versus actions, is one more important than the other? Are we, is, it, is, is it confused? What are, we, what are we supposed to do? It's a great question. <laughs> it seems, like, like Megan was saying earlier, how belief in a person, that relational belief is different than kind of I believe these things about a person. And it seems like in, in the scriptures, faith is, is an action-oriented call, and I think belief is an action-oriented call. So to believe in someone, to believe in Jesus, we orient our lives in an action kind of a way around that. So I guess I don't see those two things as totally separate from each other, that belief in Jesus is, is different from following in these ways that Jesus Jesus commands us to live in forgiveness and in, in those sorts of things. So mm-hmm. that might be a little bit of a, I'm not trying to dismiss that question, but I don't see those as two distinctly separate things. Professor Sullivan, from a philosopher's perspective, is that, are, are these things different, belief and action? How might we sort this out in terms of being a Christian? There, belief and action are definitely different. I think most, uh, most philosophers would think that there's important disanalogies between what's going on in our mind and action. One is we seem to have a great deal of control over our actions. So like um, if Hannah says, Sullivan, I'll pay you $2,000 if you shout the F word in front of this auditorium. I could like deliberate about whether I'm going to do it and then decide to take the money or not. As you might think, our beliefs, we just, if she says, I'll pay you $2,000 to believe this auditorium is empty right now, I might not be able to do it, even, no matter how much I want the money. There's nothing, I, there's no like single act of control that I have right now about what I'm believing. It's something that is forced on me by the evidence. The fact that I'm seeing all of you guys right now, that I'm aware that I'm in Newburgh and that this event is happening, means that no matter what, I have to believe it. Um, so that's a key difference is, you also think people can be held morally responsible or judged for their actions, so I might get judged very harshly for choosing to take her bet, but if I don't have control over my beliefs, then maybe I also can't be like judged or held responsible for those as directly, um, and that's something more that God and the sor- my sources of evidence are in control of. So that would be one big, I mean, there's a huge philosophical debate about this, about how much we actually have control over what we believe, but that would be, um, that would be an area where philosophers would think that there's a pretty big difference. Hmm. I'd also say that uh, that's a very important question, which highlights maybe two poles of the way that we think about faith, and especially uh, that has played out in church history. So, you know, Protestants will very much stress justification by faith alone, right? So that maybe uh, there are verses in Paul that say, you know, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, right? 
Um, and then other statements like, well, you can't believe that Jesus is Lord unless the Holy Spirit is at work in you, things like that. Um, but then we also have you know, other traditions like the Catholic tradition that is m much more works-oriented, right? And so there is a place for faith, but that faith has to be accompanied by works. And uh, you know, it is telling, I think, in scripture that Jesus in his parables you know, there's always this like aha moment at the end of the parables where he's like, do likewise, right? And so Matthew 28, maybe you were referencing this, Thomas, um, in your question. Matthew 28 is, is I find, so harrowing because it's like, it tells a story of the servant who um, forgives his servant, but then he, you know, it's complicated, but the, the, basically at the end of it, it says, if you do not forgive, I will throw you into the lake of fire, right? Or God will throw you into the lake of fire. It's like, ah, you know, I have to forgive or else, you know, I might not be saved, right? And so this is kind of threat of judgment and damnation um, if you don't forgive. And that's the, the lesson of the parable, right? And so, you know, maybe those who would lean too much on the pole of, well, justification by faith alone, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to carry my cross. I don't have to live a life of faith. Um, that's a pushback against that. Mm. But then you don't want to go all the way to the other extreme where you are saved by works uh, completely. And so there was a, a, an early heresy, Pelagianism, that believed, yeah, well, you know, we can just save ourselves. You don't really need God. So in answer to what Dr. Doak was saying earlier, like, what does it mean to believe? I tried to say in my lecture that it really is a dynamic following after Jesus. It's a discipleship that is not just about prepositional beliefs. Um, and not just about saying, okay, I'm saved once and for all, I don't have to do anything, but it's a life of faith that really follows Christ in action and uh, in word. I think a follow-up question I would have too is, and I don't totally know the answer to this, is how did the, the people in that time, the first century people who were around Jesus, how did they understand what it meant to be saved? And is it to, to be saved into like heaven versus hell, or is that sort of a, something that has been developed over time, or was it to be saved into, from one kind of quality of life into a quality of life that is eternal, into a kingdom of God, and so those, the different way of understanding what it means to be saved kind of plays into the ways that you maybe mm -hmm. would understand what are the requirements then for that. And there might, there might be too much emphasis, like we're saved from certain things, but what are you saved into, right? Like what, what life does that entail now right. that you are, you know, a child of God and saved, etc. Right. Yeah, I mean, if, for anybody who leans too heavily into belief, the passage you mentioned, Matthew chapter 18, if you're a note taker, is a good one to just read and be like, wow, those are some pretty harsh words about forgiveness or lack of forgiveness. Dr. Payne? Yeah, we've got several more questions. I'm going to pass it down to the middle. Uh, hi. Hi. I have a question for Dr. Garcia. Um, how, can you explain a little bit more how what we read in Leviticus relates to your lecture? Well, thank you very much for that question. Uh, so um, we read Leviticus 16, which is a very important chapter, and it has this interesting discussion about these two goats, one that is slain, right, and then the other that is sent out, as if your, your sins are sent out into this wilderness, right? You have to be separated from your sin. And so I think that communicates um, a lot about the logic of sacrifice in the Old Testament. Uh, and if you actually go to Hebrews in the New Testament, it's an amazing book that talks a lot about this sacrificial logic and how um, what was foreshadowed in Leviticus is fulfilled in, um, in Christ. And so Hebrews 9 talks a lot about this, uh, how Christ is a sacrificial lamb. 
And there's also this interesting reference in Hebrews 13 where it says Jesus was crucified outside the gates of the city. So it's also a reference to this kind of second goat that is, mm. you know, uh, sent out. And so we might take from that that not only is Christ the sacrifice for our sins, but also he takes away our sins. He distances us from our sins, if that makes sense. So that's a, a really good observation. Um, thank you for that question. I wonder if I might regale the panel with a couple of controversial questions about Jesus and about how Jesus relates to the world in which we live. When I was thinking about this topic, I just thought to myself, you never hear Jesus more than you do today. Jesus this, Jesus that, Jesus is everywhere. Kanye West now has an album about Jesus. Like, you know, um, I think about politics. Like, we are in this current, like, gridlock. We're heading into this election season every day. I mean, I get a newspaper delivered to my house six days a week, and every day it's just front and center. And I just wonder, I mean, I know this is a really abstract question and kind of big, but I wonder if you'd be willing to try to tackle it. What do you think Jesus would say to us in America about our current political divisions? Do you think Jesus has a solution for that kind of stuff? Or is Jesus more about private spiritual concerns that don't have anything to do with our current debates and climate and culture in the United States? I'll, I'll step into this. Yeah. One. <laughs> um, one thing that always strikes me about reading the Bible is, uh, you know, when I read the New York Times, I think, this is the worst year in human history. Like, we have the worst government. We are making the worst decisions. We are the worst people. What is going on? And then you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you realize that everybody has always felt this way. So, like, you know, the Jews in the desert in the Old Testament are like, we have really screwed up this time. We, God doesn't want to be with us anymore. We're trying to find a king, but we keep electing the wrong king. Uh, we keep getting, you know, there's a line in Samuel of like, you get, you're going to get the king that you deserve. Mm. This seems like, to, this is totally how it feels to be part of a, a big complicated political system. And it's just how humans have always felt. And the Christian tradition and the Bible has also has been really clear, like, Stop being so narcissistic. Stop thinking that yours is the special era of humanity or that this particular presidential election is going to be the watershed moment. And instead, like, you will get the king that you really deserve. Like, keep your eyes on the prize. Um, you're going to have to stand up to injustice when you see it, and you definitely don't have to just accept piecemeal the political order that you currently have. But also, don't be, mis don't be so mistaken by like, the noise and the current controversy here that you forget that we're all waiting for a different setup and striving for a very, very different setup than this. And like, uh, you know, your side winning in the next election is not what you're really hoping for. Well, yeah, I mean, I, just to uh, piggyback on that, I do think the issue nowadays is how we almost expect a political messiah. Right, yeah. or some, that politics will save us, yeah. right? And so I totally agree with you, Dr. Sullivan, that sometimes we put so much stock in politics that we forget that, uh, you know, um, not to preach, but we have a greater hope, right? <laughs> and so that, and it's interesting also to think about Jesus, his response when the Pharisees trying to push him in a very political direction. He says, okay, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, but render unto God what is God's, right? Which is your soul, right? And your <laughs> life. So it's like, okay, I'll pay my taxes, and also my primary allegiance is to Christ, you know. So um, I love it how Jesus gives these kind of like both and, but it's always uh, pretty challenging. Uh, so yeah, so just to say um, all that. Pastor Suter, has, has politics been a distraction in your, in your ministry and in your church work, or do you think it's led people into a deeper conversation with Jesus? 
On Tuesday mornings, we, we have this planning team where we talk about the service on Sunday and we talk about how we're going to do announcements and how we're going to do, you know, the message and how the worship might flow into that. And often when there's something major that happens in the world, we have to wrestle with that question. Do we not bring that in to Sunday service? But this is really impacting everybody's weeks, you know, and, and this is, we are in this world. And so how do we engage that in a way that is not going to give us a whole bunch of angry emails afterwards <laughs> was our first kind of heart behind it. But then, but then also how, yeah, how do we continue to disciple people in the whole of their lives, which includes their political lives, but how does that find its right place too, in that our political lives aren't what is going to be the end all be all, but they're still a huge part of what it means to be human, what it means to be a, a, um, a Jesus following citizen in, in this world too. And so I think, I think personally for me, a, a way that I try and engage with that is to continue to humanize politics and to humanize candidates and not that that means I have to think they're amazing or, or great at everything they're thinking, but can we keep people, can we continue to see people through the eyes of, of Jesus in, in grace and in truth? Um, so that's just a personal practice for myself as I engage in that, that world. I think one thing that, uh, that I've thought a lot about, especially the last two years as a Christian watching his political story unfold in the United States is how one of the key messages of the gospel is you, if you really want wisdom about power, look for the people that seem like they have no power, and in Christianity, those are the people with actual power. Like, so, the, you know, the Messiah, everybody expected he was going to come in as a really obvious king. He turns out he comes born into a manger by a, a couple that was, uh, then had to flee their home. Um, so the, the king himself will come in a really different, unexpected, powerless form, and that's where real power will reside. Blessed are the poor. All the, the Beatitudes are always telling you, like, if you want to be wise about power, and Christians have to be smart about power, you have to look at the people that our culture deems to be powerless, and that's where you're going to find some of the, the deepest truths about power. And, and that's something that also I think is missing from a lot of our political rhetoric now, where everything's superficial. I mean, we, I love that, because I think when the, in the parables in the New Testament, often there's, there's these parables that describe what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom is like, the kingdom is like, and I don't think ever, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, is like the kingdom of God is like coming in with military might and conquering and taking back what is ours. You know, like the kingdom of God is a subversive, it's yeast leavening the dough, it's a mustard seed growing into a tree, you know, it's, it's coming in these slow, subversive mm. ways that isn't mm. like coming with power and might, so I think that's a great thing. Wow, yeah, that's a great reminder. Dr. Payne, how about one more question we from the, the audience? We might have to go lightning. We might have to go lightning. It's going to be lightning round. We might have to go lightning round on this. Warning. But we can do it. Hi, go for Hi, it. Hi, my name is Lila. Um, Hi, Lila. <laughs> I was wondering how you were talking about in your lecture, Dr. Garcia, about rom-coms, and how does that relate to the Song of Solomon, um, chapter 8, and how does it just relate to like what we're talking about this week? Rom-coms, great way to end it. Thank you, Lila. Excellent, um, Lila. I don't know if this is a lightning it. round type setup, well, but... We'll just call it a lightning round for you. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, um, so what I was trying to bring together with all that conversation was um, the bridal imagery. So we have a lot of image of Christ as the bridegroom coming for the bride. 
Uh, and so this is foreshadowed, I think, in Song of Solomon, where you have a lover speaking to his beloved, saying, I am his, he is mine. But also uh, in chapter 8, love is as fierce as death, right? And so Christ coming uh, for his bride, he shows love to be as fierce as death on the cross, but also in the resurrection, overpowering when love overcomes death. So that's just a quick word. And rom-coms, um, yeah, I just, I like to hook you guys in with something, so that was that. It sounds like you're saying that the Bible is the best rom-com that ever <laughs> Maybe happened. less, less, maybe, less <laughs> calm, like some rom, yeah, yeah. Hey students, you've been great today. Will you join me in thanking this panel? Mm -hmm.